Welcome to Industry Roundtable with Roger Reiswig. I'm Roger Reiswig, Fellow and Vice President of Industry Relations at Johnson Controls. In this series, I will host leaders in the industry to explore fire and life safety issues that matter to you. Hello and welcome to another edition of Industry Roundtable. I am Roger Reiswig. Today, my guest is Ken Isman. Ken is a clinical professor in the Fire Protection Engineering Department at the University of Maryland. Welcome, Ken. Howdy. It's, uh, it's good to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Roger. Uh, glad you're here. Uh, Ken, could you tell your, our listeners a little bit about the University of Maryland Fire Protection Engineering Program and your position there? Sure, I'd be, I'd be happy to. Um, the University of Maryland is or has the only accredited fire protection engineering program for bachelors of science students in the United States. Uh, we also have a, a wonderful graduate program along with a few other universities in the United States. So we're in a unique position to offer fire protection engineering to those uh, students that, that want to study this, this uh, rather unique form of, of engineering. Great. And you've been, how long have you been at the university, Ken? I've been here for seven years now, and, and prior to that, I worked in the industry as a fire protection engineer, um, where I built an expertise in the design of water-based fire extinguishing systems and uh, writing codes and standards. Here at the University of Maryland, I teach the classes in fire protection systems design, so design of uh, sprinkler systems and other fire suppression systems fire alarm uh, systems, smoke control systems, and uh, egress for buildings. Oh, that's great. And um, yeah, you have a very diverse and interesting background uh, for sure, Ken. Um, today, we are going to discuss a little bit about building codes, building standards, what they are, um, how they work together, and other things about that. And can you teach on this subject at the university? And I thought you would be a great person to have as a guest to explain these subjects. So to start out, what exactly is a building code versus a building standard? So th this is a really great question and, uh, and, and one that people get confused with just because the terminology in the industry tends to use slang phrases. And so we talk about something being in the code or something being a matter of code or making, making sure buildings are up to code. But that doesn't always mean that the rules that we're following come from a document called the code. And so that, that starts off with, with a, a confusing uh, terminology for the public. So technically, a, a code and a standard are both written in ways that are legally enforceable so that someone can come along and actually look at a building and say, yes, this building meets these requirements or no, this building does not meet these requirements. So the, the language in the documents, both codes and standards, needs to be such that it's, um, there's only one way to interpret it and uh, it's, it's relatively easy to determine whether uh, a building complies with the rules or doesn't comply with the rules. But the way that they're different is that a building code is supposed to cover the answers to the question, what, or what does a building need? And so we look to building codes to tell us what kind of equipment a building needs. 
So a building code might say this building is required to have a fire alarm system or that building is required to have a fire sprinkler system. The code does not get into telling us how to design that system, or I should say it shouldn't get into telling us how to design that system. The answer to the question how, how to design a system comes from a standard. And um, that's supposed to be the kind of the dividing line between these two different kinds of documents. So a standard will tell you how to design a system, how it's supposed to perform, how the equipment is supposed to be arranged, how we want to put the equipment together so that it works uh, properly. All of that is supposed to be in a standard. And a code will reference a standard. So a building code or a fire code doesn't tell people how to put together a fire alarm system or a fire sprinkler system, but it will reference a standard to say any system that's required to be installed in accordance with this code needs to be done in accordance with this building standard. So uh, in summary, uh, codes are supposed to answer the question, what do we need? And standards are supposed to answer the question, how is it supposed to be designed and installed? Now that's a great um, summary of that, Ken. Thank you. And yet people ask us, right, all the time, where in 72, NFPA 72 or NFPA 13, does it tell me that um, I need a sprinkler system or I need a fire alarm system? And it doesn't, right? It's the building code that drives you to get there. So, yeah, a, a building code or a fire code or even the life safety code, which is written by the NFPA and is not quite doesn't quite fall into the category of either a building code or a fire code. Any of those documents will be the documents you want to look to to answer that question. Does this building need a fire alarm system or does this building need a sprinkler system? Yeah, now you brought up NFPA, and I think that's a good segue. Um, you know, there are basically two major code writing entities that we use in the United States. And these same codes and standards are used, you know, in many parts around the world. So we have NFPA and we have the ICC. So Ken, one question I often get is, are NFPA and the ICC owned by the same parent company or are they partners in the life of the safety code world? Could you explain the differences between NFPA and then the ICC and how they work or don't work together? <laughs> um, that's a huge question. We could actually do a whole podcast on, on just that question. Um, so uh, the very short answer is no, the NFPA and the ICC are, are not the same organization. They aren't owned by the same parent company and, and they don't have any uh, official um, uh, corporate relationship. Um, they are in many ways competitors and yet at the same time they're partners. And so it's, it's a very interesting situation. The two organizations are both independent nonprofit organizations dedicated to public health and safety. Um, the NFPA is much older. The NFPA was founded in 1896 in order to try and standardize the rules for um, building codes and, and standards. Prior to the formation of the NFPA, there was no national organization that was standardizing how, how buildings got constructed. And they were dealing with this newfangled thing called electricity that they were really worried about, 
in terms of making sure it was um, designed and installed in buildings safely, as well as fire sprinkler systems, which um, there were like nine or 10 different sets of rules on how to design fire sprinkler systems. So the NFPA was formed in order to write a, a series of, of codes and standards that would help to standardize these, these pieces of equipment that were beginning to be installed in buildings. So they have a long history of, of writing codes and, and standards. The ICC is a much newer organization. Um, the ICC was actually formed in 1995. And um, prior to that, there were regional code groups that wrote regional uh, documents, regional model codes. And it, it got to the point where it was really silly to have all of these independent regional code groups together uh, or, or working to, to, to write model codes. And so um, the ICC was formed with the merger of actually five different smaller code organizations that got together and said, let's write one series of, of model codes that everyone around the United States and even outside the United States could use. And that's why they named their, their organization the International Codes Council, hoping that not only would people inside the United States use their documents, but many people outside the United States would recognize them as, as good documents to use as well. No, yeah, thank you for that. And yeah, the ICC really hasn't been around that long at all when we look at um, you know the history pers perspective of it. And so I guess just to, and not to turn this into a, a whole code learning session, um, but just to understand a little bit about it, could you um, explain maybe the occupancy group types? This is probably one of the questions I get uh, asked a lot, and there seems to be a lot of confusion about this. So both the ICODES, International Code Council, uh, and NFPA have these occupancy group types. Could you explain how these are set up within the documents and why we have various occupancy types? Sure. So the way that a fire is going to burn and move through a building and affect the building occupants really depends on the way that the building is being used. And so ever since the beginning of, of building codes, people have recognized that buildings are used for different purposes and the purpose of the building will establish in some general sense, the, the amount of fuel that will be in the, the building for a fire, the arrangement of that fuel and the, general location of people and the condition of those people. Um, so, uh, for example, in a residential occupancy, you're going to have a certain type of fuel load and a certain type of arrangement of that fuel. And the people are going to be in um, uh, doing certain activities within the, the, the rooms of that residential occupancy that make them particularly vulnerable to fire, um, such as sleeping where you're, you're not really awake or, or able to react as quickly if a fire occurs. And that's going to be completely different from a business occupancy or an assembly occupancy, where there's going to be a different fuel load, a different arrangement of that fuel, and the people are going to be in a different condition. You generally don't assume that people are going to be sleeping when they're in a business occupancy or that people are going to be sleeping when they're in an assembly occupancy. And so we can make different assumptions about the 
um, the state of awareness of those people in these different occupancies, and then start from there in writing the rules for what we think are going to help to keep people safe within those occupancies. So each of the model code groups have similar kinds of descriptions of the activities um, that, that people will be doing and the way that each of these buildings will be used and the type of fuel and the arrangement of fuel that will be in those occupancies if there uh, is a fire. So Ken, that was a great summary of, uh, of the codes and the occupancies and how they come together and the need for even having to have different occupancy uh, groups or types. Um, so another question I guess that I see and, and a little bit of confusion about is we hear about additions to codes or maybe code cycles. What does that mean when we, when we hear those terms? Well, it would be great if we could just write one code and it would have all the rules in it that keep people safe within those buildings and we could just leave that code the way it is. But we can't do that for two reasons. And the first reason is that time marches on. Um, manufacturers invent new products that are, are much better at, at doing um, some sort of life safety or property protection procedure or, or situation. Um, manufacturers come up with less expensive ways to do things. So the technology becomes more affordable for the people that own certain types of buildings. And so we need to address these, these new technologies that come available in the marketplace. At the same time, fires happen and we experience losses and we realize that something that was allowable by the code is no longer acceptable. Um, it's no longer acceptable because some large loss of life occurs and, and we need to address what is either a hole in the code or, or something new that's happened the, the way that architects are, are designing buildings. And so we, we find that because of these two reasons, we need to address how the code is written on a fairly regular basis. And after experimenting with many different um, waiting periods where we wait to develop a new edition of, of the codes, or the standards, we have found that a three-year revision cycle seems to be about right. So once every three years, we start the process over again for evaluating what's in the code currently and what's in the, the building standards that are referenced by the code. And we take a look at how we can make that code better. We look at fires that have occurred since the last time that the code was written. We look at new technology and devices that have, have uh, been brought to the marketplace. And then we also look at the code, believe it or not, we look at the code and the standards and we try and figure out how could we say the same thing a little bit better so that people understand it just a little bit more. So I can't speak to everybody who, who's in the, who works in the codes and standards process, but I know I spend a lot of time keeping track of the questions that I get on how codes and standards are written. And I look at them and I try and find a way when I get a lot of questions about a particular section of the code or standard, I try and find a way to write it so it, it makes more sense for people to understand it a little bit more. So this, uh, the three-year cycle of reviewing the codes and standards and trying to improve them uh, seems to work out fairly well in terms of trying to address the, the new things that are occurring and trying to improve on the language we've already written. 
No, that's a that's a great summary of that. And and you're right. The uh, the three years seems to work pretty well. And I don't think people realize the thousands of people that work behind the scenes on these various codes and standards to help develop them. And um, and the general public can submit uh, changes too that they would like to see or things that maybe are impacting them that probably impact other people. So everybody can kind of get involved in the process, which I really like about that. So when a when a newer addition to a code or a standard is published, how does that become a law or a requirement in a state or jurisdiction or the federal government for that matter? So when an organization like the NFPA or the ICC develops a code, as I mentioned earlier, they are independent nonprofit organizations. They exist to write these ideal sets of, of building requirements that are, um, as you mentioned, written by thousands and thousands of, of individuals that get together and, and try and agree on what the, the best language or, or terminology would be and what the best requirements would be for these codes and standards. But they don't have any force or effect of law because they're, they're written by these independent organizations. A state or a local jurisdiction will then look at these model codes and decide whether they want to adopt these codes. And, and it, it starts off with the states. The states say, um, yes, we're going to adopt the code. Or in some case, the state might say, no, we're not going to adopt the code. And, and that's rare, but it happens. There are a few states that, that statewide say, we're not going to adopt the code. We're going to leave it up to the local jurisdictions. But the states that decide they are going to, to adopt the code, they have a choice of either adopting the code the way it's written, and they'll pass a law that says all the buildings that will be constructed in this, uh, this jurisdiction are required to um, be uh, constructed in accordance with um, X model code, whether it's an ICC code or an NFPA code. And then they'll also generally um, adopt some building standards um, or they might rely on just the, the code actually adopting those building standards. But it, it takes an act of law by a jurisdiction. Now, some states will adopt that code along with some standards as the, the minimum of what you're allowed to do in the state, but they will allow the local jurisdictions to make revisions to them. So um, where I live in the state of Maryland, they do that. There's a Maryland state code, and they've, they've adopted the, the ICC the building code and fire code and, and all of its reference standards. They've adopted those as a, a state law with their Maryland amendments. So it's not exactly the ICC code, but they've made a few Maryland amendments to that code. But then they allow the local jurisdictions to make changes. And so if you build a building in one city in Maryland, it's going to be a slightly different code requirements than if you build in a different city in Maryland. Whereas right across the, the river down in, in Virginia, they have a slightly different way of adopting codes. They adopt the, the ICC set of codes, the building code and the fire code and all their reference standards, but they don't allow any jurisdiction within the state to make any changes. They say, nope, we're, we're just going to adopt one code statewide and, and enforce it statewide. And that sort of code adoption is called a mini-max code, 
where the code is the minimum that you can build a building to in the state, but it's also the maximum anywhere in the state that can be required of a building owner when they're, they're constructing a building. So there's, there's different ways that, that states and local jurisdictions can adopt codes, but they have to legally adopt something. You can't just assume that because there's a code out there that it is legally being enforced. So some body of the legislature has got to take some positive action to mandate those codes or, or make them the law within that jurisdiction. Yeah, exactly. That was a great review of that, Ken, and, and how that happens. And But I guess also, too, as a follow-up to that, you, know, you talked about how there's research or things have happened that we've learned to make the next editions better. If I'm in a location that maybe hasn't adopted a later edition of the code or a standard, uh, there are times where I might want to work with the authority having jurisdiction, the AHJ, maybe the insurance underwriter, and say, look, there's a better way, I think, for us to be doing this particular application. And sometimes you can present that to the local AHJ building owner or engineer and um, maybe use part of the newer code or the newer standard. Um, have you seen that happen um, in, in your review? Absolutely. And recognizing that, all of the codes now include language up front that give the, the, the authorities, you mentioned the term authorities having jurisdiction, those people who were responsible for the enforcement of the code gives them the ability to, um, to address any kind of arrangement that would provide um, the proper level of safety for a building that may not be directly addressed by the addition of the code that they've written, but this language in the code gives them the authority to say, we'll, we'll consider these alternate arrangements or these different ways of doing things. And, and, and they might come from newer codes or they might just come from a manufacturer that's developed a new product that the code never addressed before. And um, as long as the authorities having jurisdiction have a way of evaluating that information, and saying, yes, this, this meets this, the same minimum level of safety that we're looking for in our code. Um, the, the, the newer language from the newer code can be used or the newer product can be used as long as it's been evaluated in order to show that it, it meets a, a minimum level of safety. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a powerful... Uh, uh, the language in the code has been written in such a way to be a, a powerful enforcement tool that allows us to use some of the newer technologies that have come out even before a, a jurisdiction has gone through and a formally adopted a code with that new technology addressed in it. So let me just ask one more question here, Ken. I don't, we're kind of getting pressed on time. But so with all of this being said, in other countries, they have in many of them, they have one building code that applies across the whole country. Why don't we have a single United States building code that would make it easier to design the same buildings and install the same systems everywhere in the United States? Yeah, wouldn't, wouldn't that be nice? Uh, yeah, you go to Canada and there's a Canadian building code and you go to other countries and there's uh, I've, I've done work in Sweden and there's a Swedish uh, code, uh, but not in the United States. And it all goes back to the late 1700s when our founding fathers were writing the Constitution of the United States. 
They wrote the Constitution being very afraid of having a strong federal government and strong federal powers. They wrote the Constitution in such a way that the federal government is only allowed to have the powers that the Constitution gives the federal government, and then all other powers are, are, are reserved for the states. And one of the powers that is specifically reserved for the states, as you, as you, the, the way that I'm told by constitutional experts, the way to read the Constitution is that the, the power of policing, of, of really telling people what they can and cannot do, is reserved for the states. So the Constitution of the United States of America does not allow any sort of police power, and a code is a police power. And so we can't have a United States building code written by the federal government. Now, that doesn't stop the federal government from getting involved in, in public policy as far as, as buildings are concerned. But instead of writing a code for how to construct a building properly, the federal government will instead try and use money as, as an influencer. They will actually say, well, um, we can't tell you how to construct a hospital, but we control um, Medicare and Medicaid funding. And so if you're going to build a hospital and if you want, if you run that hospital and you want reimbursement from the Medicare and Medicaid program, then we're going to tell you there's a code you have to follow in accordance uh, with in order to get reimbursed uh, for for that work you do with someone who qualifies for Medicare or Medicaid. So in that way, the federal government uses their money as influence in the building code process, but they're technically not allowed to pass a requirement that people actually adopt or use any specific code or standard. That's a great overview, Ken, and thank you for that. And thank you for being part of this podcast today. Uh, we, we do need to wrap it up now, but um, this has been really, really insightful, and I thank you for clearing up some of the uh, common questions that I think that we all get asked uh, in our industry. So I know you're very busy at the university and um, I just want to thank you again for taking the time today to be with me. Sure. Thank you. I, I enjoyed being a guest on your podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of Industry Roundtable. Be on the lookout for more podcasts in the coming weeks covering a range of fire and life safety related topics. Before we wrap up, I wanted to mention that this podcast is for informational purposes and is not professional advice. We recommend you consult with your local authorities or seek professional counsel for your life safety needs.